Morning, everyone. It's an exciting time, isn't it? It's uh, half term, and one of my children is away at Manchester City. Um, uh, who said no? <laughs> Enjoying football. Um, so we only have two of them with us now. It's interesting just having, um, experiencing initially the initial stages of letting go of your children, you know, and and having them away for for a couple of days. But it's it's an interesting time in in our lives when when we also think about about worship and what worship actually actually does mean. And and I mentioned my children because they've been getting excited about worship these days, a whole lot more excited. We've been playing a lot of worship music and um, around the house. Very exciting times. People have been dancing and singing, singing and jumping up and down. Uh, and some of you may know Christine that she's pretty enthusiastic, shall we say, yeah. <laughs> in singing lovely, lovely, lively praise and worship songs. Um, one of my one of my um, one of my favorite foods is Jamaican food, uh, I guess for obvious reasons, and and one of the main things that we do when we come to eat is we have lots of different dishes. It's not just one big main dish, right? You might have a small bowl of rice and peas, or a small bowl of some jerk chicken, or a small bowl of um, or dish of you know some fried plantains or something like that. It's always pretty exciting, almost like a kaleidoscope of different 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 dishes. And so this morning, I'd like to serve up some spiritual Jamaican food, shall we say, um, in some nuggets, not necessarily chicken nuggets, but hopefully you'll be able to take away uh, at, at least a dish or two or three or five of um, some really salient points that I think that God is really um, saying to us um, this morning. So the title of my sermon is The Heart of Worship. And I've been involved with worship, whether it's singing or just lifting hands or whatever, or doing backing vocals or doing some, some recordings and so on for quite a number of years. And it wasn't until you know, 10, 20 years had passed that I started thinking about what it is. What is worship? What does worship actually mean? And why do we worship? And how should we worship? All these questions um, have been have been um, flagging up in my mind, certainly over the last few years, and also in recent months as I, as I took on this, this role of, as, as, as elder of, of prayer and worship. But it's a big topic, a very, very big topic. And it could easily be three to four, um, three to five different series, or three or five-part series. Uh, but I'll try and condense it all down um, this morning. So first of all, I'm going to address the why. Why do we worship? Or why should we worship? Secondly, what is worship? And then thirdly, how should we worship? The scripture says in terms of the why, Revelations 4 verse 11, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The New Living Translation says in the last part, we exist because you created us, and you were created um, for what you pleased. In other words, the first reason for worship is that we were created to worship. Amen? 
We were created to worship. We were created for God's pleasure, and we were wired to worship God or to worship something or someone. Everyone worships something or someone. And if you don't worship God, something or someone else would take that place, right? Worship music, or we worship celebrities, or we worship some latest gadgets, or the iPhone 10, or the Samsung, whatever it is that you're into. Daniel chapter 3 talks about, I don't know if you remember this story, about the three young Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when King Nebuchadnezzar decreed that the people should bow down and worship the image of gold that he made. And if they didn't do that, they'd be thrown into the fiery furnace. But the three boys said, no, I'm not going to worship your God, nor worship the image of gold. Their response was very, very simple. And in Daniel chapter 3, verse 18, if you switch on your Bibles or turn to your Bibles, um, they said, but even if he does not deliver me or deliver us, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. And of course, the king got very, very angry and threw them into the fiery furnace. They did not know whether God would deliver them. But dead or alive, they wouldn't worship any other gods. And of course, you, you know the result of that story. They were miraculously rescued, and the king, king ultimately promoted them in the province of Babylon. And the king then said to everyone, worship the true and living God. The three men honored God, and God honored them back. Of course, nowadays, we might not necessarily bow down to statues of gold or silver or bronze, but we give a lot of our time and attention to so many different things, and they crowd out our lives. Throughout the Bible, God talks about, don't worship the created, but the creator. And when we honor God, like Daniel, or like Shadrach, like Meshach and Abednego, God honors us in return. So that's the first reason why we worship. We worship because we were created. We were created to worship. The second reason is that God first loved us. So worship is a natural response to God's love. Amen? So he always makes the first move, and he's the one that starts protecting, loving, and providing us. And our appropriate response is to offer him our worship. Thank you, Lord. I love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done in our lives. And thank you for what you're going to provide for us and, and do through us. That is worship, or that is why we worship, in response to a very, very loving God. Now turning to the what. Romans 12, verse 1, talks about, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 
So worship then is giving back to God all our life and everything that we do. Everything that we, that we do should be an act of worship to God. We were created for God's pleasure. We were created to give him our praise. And if you've given your heart to God, then true worship reflects lives completely abandoned and completely sold out to Jesus. So worship isn't necessarily about the singing. It isn't necessarily about raising our hands or falling or bowing down. Worship starts with the heart. It starts internally. I don't know if you remember Matt Redmond's song. I'm coming back to a heart of worship. When the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'll bring you more than a song. For a song in itself is not what you have required. You search much deeper within through the way things appear. You're looking into my heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When it's all about you, it's all about you. Mark 12, verse 28, a teacher of the law asked him, of all the commandments, Jesus, what is the most important? And the Lord said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. God wants it all. He wants all of us, every single part of our being. That's what he wants. He wants us to love him passionately passionately, and express our affection to him. Of course, that verse is similar to the very first commandment in Exodus 20, verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other God before me. So the most important thing is that God gets first place in our lives. And of course, it starts with having a relationship with God, doesn't it? Which affects all our other relationships. I was listening to J. John the other day, and he said, God is God, and he's not applying for the job. He's not going to play second fiddle to anything else or to anyone else in your life. God wants our full attention. He wants us to be completely and utterly sold out to him. But we have to put him first in everything. Worshipping God and being completely sold out to him is almost akin to, to saying, God, I want you first in my life, in every single thing that I do. Everything, not just one thing, not, not just compartmentalizing my life and saying, God, yeah, you can take, my, take over my, my worship life or my church life or my job. 
But you know, my social life and this little habit that I have, nah, I don't really. Uh, I'll just take care of that myself. He wants us to completely sell ourselves over or submit ourselves over to him. Imagine your life like a car. And to be a Christian or to worship God means that he's in the car of your life, right? And if he's already in the car of your life, of course, that's what most of you will say if you're a Christian. Is God in the car of your life? Show of hands. Yeah? But, but where in the car is he? Is he in the boot? <laughs> Do you just kind of go into the boot of the car and say, come on, God, come on, Jesus, come with me on, on a Sunday morning? I put my best suit on, my Sunday best, and, and uh, everyone says, hi, how are you doing? Yeah, fine, everything's all fine. And then after the service, you go back in and shut him back into the, into the boot. Boom. Don't come back out until next week, Sunday, Jesus. Uh, you, know, you, you stay right there. Or is he in the back seat? You know where this is heading, right? <laughs> or you think you know where this is heading. <laughs> is he in the driver's seat of your life? Is he driving your car? And of course, most of you will say, yeah, of course, he's in, in, in the front seat, in, in the driver's seat. God is in full control. Really? Is he? And if he is actually in the front seat driving, where are you? Are you a backseat driver <laughs> while Jesus is driving? Or the passenger seat? You know, sometimes, you know, I'm sure many of you have had these kinds of experiences if you have partners or friends uh, that, you're, that you're driving with. I want to turn right. No, no, why, why turn right? Go left. It's quicker that way. And then suddenly an argument starts. <laughs> Are you going to the supermarket parking lot? And I want to find that parking spell. I want to park there. No, no, but that, that one is, is closer to the actual door. And no, no, but this it doesn't really matter. No one really experiences that, have you? No. <laughs> but when Jesus is driving the car, and he says, I've come to the intersection, I'm going to turn right. Ah, why are you going that way, Jesus? I'm going down the road of forgiveness. Really, I don't want to forgive. No. Or he comes to a roundabout and he takes the first exit. Why are you taking that first exit? Uh, well, you know, I'm going down the road of kindness. I don't want to be kind or generous to anyone. Do you see what they've done to me? Have you let go and given God full and complete control of the car of your life? So worshiping God means that having made him number one in our lives, we must always and constantly reaffirm that decision. It's not just a one-off when you start of that walk with Jesus when you first become a Christian. You have to be regularly and constantly saying, God, take over. Take over in the driving seat. I'm sorry, Lord, I apologize. I've been doing it all myself for the last few years. You have utter and total control. Then thirdly, we turn to the how. How should we worship? And if we're putting God first in our lives, if worship really is being completely sold out to God, come up with this acronym first, F-I-R-S-T. 
he needs to be first in our finances, first in our interests, first in our relationships, first in our schedule, or schedule, as Americans say, and first in our thoughts. So let's start with the finances. Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 14 says, Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws, and his decrees that I am giving to you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase, and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt and out of the land of slavery. Of course, nothing's wrong with being wealthy, but our self-indulgence can stifle our love for God and stop us, actually, from worshipping. A lot of times I, I just use this, this mantra that how you spend your money reveals what's important to you. God owns everything that we have. And I don't know if you remember when uh, Ian was talking about money last year and J. John was and put up the J. John clip that God owns all our donuts. He owns everything that we have. And all he's saying is just give it away. Give it back to me. All our money, all our possessions is on loan to us. We're just temporary stewards of God's provision. Naked we came into this world, and naked shall we return. Put God first in our finances. The second thing is in our interests, in our careers, our hobbies, our recreation activity. Worship really, is using our abilities and our career and our talent for God. Colossians 3.17 says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is how we worship. Putting God first in all our interests. So when we go to work, our mentality should be, God is the boss. Not the CEO or the UK government or whoever is owning the business. And if God is our boss, and, and we worship, and, you know, if we're putting God first in, in our interests, then we should have a really, really, really good work ethic. Be the most reliable, be honest, have the right attitude. Whatever we do should be worship to God. And also in terms of our interests, what we get excited about reveals a lot. I support the football team, Arsenal. Um, I shouldn't really brag about that, actually, because we're not really having a good season this year. But when, I'm, when I go to the stadium, you know, I'm, I'm a member... Uh, um, and I take my son with me sometimes, and, and we're 
everyone is all excited, especially when there's a last-minute goal from, from one of our strikers, right? Yay, and everyone jumps up, and it's high-fives everywhere, and people, people are hugging. Even if you don't know them, people are hugging and high-fiving and, and saying, wow, and kissing each other even. I'm like, seriously? <laughs> but when we come to church, <laughs> and we raise a little hand, or we raise our hands and we clap, We call ourselves, people call us fanatics. When we're at the stadium or at the concert, we're fans on one hand. And when we come to church or we want to praise God and lift, lift our voices up and lift our hands up or bow down, we're called fanatics. You know what? I'd rather be a fanatic for Jesus than to be a fan for something or someone else. No fan apologizes for their behavior. And so we shouldn't need to apologize for being fanatics for Jesus. Third thing is putting God first in our relationships. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, Do not worship any other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, Jesus wants us to have a relationship with him and absolutely nothing and no one else. Hosea 6 verse 6 says, For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement or knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God doesn't care about our offerings sometimes. He doesn't care about our sacrifices or our routine or a religion, or being religious and being formal. God looks at our heart. It's the heart that matters to God. It's a heart of worship, putting God first in everything that we do. He wants our love, and he wants us to be real with him. He's after a love that lasts, a love that is meaningful, where we come into a deep, personal relationship and communion with him. Romans 6, verse 13 says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. If Jesus is number one in your life, he will naturally be part of your other relationships, your friendships, your marriages, your colleagues, your neighbors. I remember when Christine and I were getting married, we took a bit of guidance at uh, marriage counseling. And, and one of the things our pastor said to us at the time was, you're going to spend, or you're going to want to spend a lot, lot of time getting to know each other and, um, and spending time together. But the most effective and the most efficient way to get closer to God together is putting God first in your marriage. And if you picture a triangle where God is at the, is at the top and you both are at the base in, in the corners, and the closer you get to God and your relationship with God, the closer you automatically get to each other. And we've seen that so many times in our lives when we pray together, when we spend time worshiping God together, 
or, or just talking together about, about scriptures or, or something. When we put God as our focus, our marriage is actually pretty closer, just automatically. And when we don't, there's you know, a little bit of tension sometimes. Of course, that doesn't happen to any of you, right? No tension whatsoever. But putting God first in our relationships. If God is number one in your lives, you give him your attention, your heart, your mind, your soul. And then you can handle any problems that arise in our relationships. Fourthly, is God first on our agenda, in our schedule? Some of us have so many irons in the fire <laughs> that we put the fire out. <laughs> God gets scheduled out of our lives. So many emails, so many emails and WhatsApp messages that we spend the entire time just responding to them. And that's before our other activities take over our lives. But putting God first and worshiping God means he's part of our... Our week would be sin day, mourn day, tears day, waste day, thirst day, fight day, and shatter day. <laughs> Seven days without God makes one week. W-E-A-K. The psalmist David worshipped God morning, noon, and night. God was part of his rhythm, and it's a good model to, for, for us to follow. And this is where prayer and worship come together. Matthew 6, verse 6 says, When you pray and when you worship, sometimes, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father, who is unseen, then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So don't overcomplicate it. Be real with God. If you're worshiping God, whether it's in song, in instruments, or just sometimes when the Holy Spirit comes over you and you want to worship God, you have no, no words to say. <laughs> no music. God, God you just fall, fall, fall down and we're, we're bowed down before him. Prostrate before him sometimes. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, Look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. Also, I think it would be helpful to establish regular devotional times with God. Having a devotional quiet time is very important. Get into the habit of reading the Bible and tuning in to God, praying and singing. You may be in your car, you may be commuting, you may be on the train, walking the dog, whatever it is that you do. You can worship God almost anywhere because he's looking at your heart, he's looking at your, what's in your mind, and so on. And then finally, is Jesus first in our thoughts? Our troubles. So we looked first at our finances, in our interests, in our relationships, in our schedule, putting God first in our thoughts. Colossians 3, verse 2. 
set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And Isaiah 26, verse 3, you will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. We worry so often, don't we? And the more we think about our problems, the bigger they get. Thoughts about life's pressures and problems and crises, anxieties just take over so many times. But when everything is falling apart, who do we turn to first? Or what do we turn to first? If we prayed as much as we worried, and if we worshipped God as much as we worried, we would have a lot less to worry about. Worries about money, our job, our relationships, or we carry around so many burdens of unforgiveness, of hurts and habits and hang-ups. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. God says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Give your worries to God. When we have nothing left but God, then we realize that God is more than enough. So in summary, is God first in your finances, in your interests, relationships, schedules, thoughts? That is what having a heart of worship actually means. If we're willing to have no other gods, then we can have God. That is when God steps in and says, yeah, I'm in control of your life. What place does Jesus have in your life? And how would you feel if Jesus actually treated you the same way that you treated him? I'm not trying to send you on a guilt trip, but just some questions to ponder over. And what if he gave you the same amount of time and attention that you gave him. What if Jesus withheld his blessings from you as you withheld your offerings and worship from him? There's a poem that came across my desk the other day. If Jesus Came Into Your House by Loy Blanchard Eads, or Edies, written in the 1950s. If Jesus came to your house to spend a day or two, if he came unexpectedly, I wonder what you do. Oh, I know you'd give your nicest room to such an honored guest, and all the food you'd serve him would be the very best. And you would keep assuring, assuring him you're glad to have him there, that serving him in your home is joy beyond compare. But when you saw him coming, would you meet him at the door, with arms outstretched in welcome to your heavenly visitor? Or would you have to change your clothes before you let him in, or hide some magazines and put the Bible where they had been? Would you turn off the radio and hope he hadn't heard, and wish you hadn't uttered that last loud, hasty word? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk right in, or would you rush about? And I wonder, if the Savior spent a day or two with you, would you go right on doing the things you always do? 
Would you go right on saying the things you always say? Would life for you continue as it does from day to day? Would your family conversation lull or keep its pace? And would you find it hard each meal to say the table grace? Would you sing the songs you always sing and read the books you read? And let him know the things on which your mind and spirit fed. Would you take Jesus with you everywhere you'd planned to go? Or would you maybe change your plans for just a day or so? Would you be glad to have him meet your very closest friends? Or would you hope they'd stay away until his visit ends? Would you be glad to have him stay forever, on and on? Or would you sigh with great relief when he at last was gone? It might be interesting to know the things that you would do if Jesus came in person to spend some time with you. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. Jesus wants our allegiance. True true worship, the heart of worship, is giving God our full attention, making him number one, Number one, not number two or three, number one in our lives. Giving him all your hearts, all your minds, all your souls. Respond in worship and love to him because he gave his love to us. And that love, of course, was showed ultimately on the cross where he gave his life for us. And in return, give our hearts of worship to him so that we might become part of his family. There's a final quote from St. Augustine. Jesus Christ is not valued at all until he's valued above all. To some people, Jesus is nothing. To others, Jesus is something. And then there are those to whom Jesus is everything. Amen.